Are we recording right now? Yeah. Oh my God, fun. Okay. This voice is Hannah. And this voice is Marissa. Also, would probably am, is, are turned on by it. Hearts or Housekeep? Yeah. Of course. Doesn't actually no. make a ton of sense. No. What are you doing? Are you talking to yourself? <gasps> oh my God, I already hate this story. You know what? I'm okay with that. Because I just thought you could like bleed suddenly yeah. at any good moment. <laughs> my erotic fan fiction isn't fucking interesting enough for you. Hello, you're listening to the Tell Us More podcast. I weirdly justify things. That's a thing I do. Just, I justify things that don't make sense. Hence the um, slab of concrete under my heater yeah. <laughs> that my parents told yep. me was necessary. Because yeah. I realize that my parents do that too. Like They just like make things up. But like they parents believe are it. Just people. They just like say things. Like, yeah. Well, so is, do we. Yeah. But <laughs> parents, we just say things <laughs> and no, make them like, up half the time. They, like, they, they told me that if I didn't have a slab of concrete under my space heater, it would set on fire. And I just didn't question it. I mean, to be fair, it's entirely possible that maybe when they used to have like old space heaters. Right. Or like that would make carpets. sense. I just came in immediately and was like, this is stupid. Yeah. And also, why are we doing this? I used to <laughs> take my slab of concrete back and forth from a college when I would like, when we lived in our house, like for winter break, I would take it with me because I needed the space heater for my room because for some reason I keep getting bedrooms where there's no heat. My I sleep in the basement, so yeah, yeah. I have a space heater in mine too. So it's like, I always need a space heater and I, I took my slab of concrete out of my suitcase coming back from winter break once, like junior year. My roommate in your suitcase. Yeah, <laughs> my roommates were Just like, so that "What?" Everyone can picture this. It's like a literal. It's probably a, like a one. I mean, is it like a foot? Like a like one a, by one square like, of concrete that it's. It's actually a marble slab oh, a marble from slab. when my dad redid the basement. A marble slab. Right. And it was like a little bit broken, so he didn't use that one, and he just gave it to me. Also, <laughs> my it. dad made me help with putting the floor together and in typical John fashion he taught me how to put the tile down in the basement and then taught like taught me how to like put the install the floor and then left (laughs) guess how old I was seven I was in fourth grade okay Great. I was in fourth grade Wait, remodeling. So did you put the floor I in? I did put basement? most of it in. You okay, bet your you know ass what? I did. That is a transferable skill. It is a transferable skill. If at any point in time you need to remodel, you need to quit your job and, and move somewhere, yeah. you can work as a floor tiler. I could. I also took wood shop in high school, so I have many skills. I think I did. I took it senior year. Oh, I didn't. I took it like in middle school and it was like required. Like we did like yeah. medals and yeah. stuff. I have, I actually have a bit. Did you know? About what? Oh. Sorry, you can talk about your bit. Oh, I have a bit about how only in America would you need to sign a waiver for your 13-year-old to work with heavy machinery. Like, let's I think mean, about how fucked up that is. I kind of feel like there's a comment in there about, like, third world countries and okay. heavy machinery. And but that's that. like, but this is like a requirement <laughs> for middle school. And they're not signing school. waivers. <laughs> right, and that's bad. That's child labor. That's a whole other, like, yeah, that's fucked up. But again, that's fucked up. Like, we think right. child labor is fucked up, yet we're doing it as a requirement as middle as school like students. As, like, a fun participation thing right. for children. Yeah. Um, like, that's two fucked comments. up. <laughs> two comments. In metals, I remember, you know that final project you had to do that was like a potted plant thing that you like hung on the wall? No, we, at, at my middle school, Oh, I forgot we, we didn't had, go to the same middle school. Yeah, I we did the cars, like we, we, we did that. the car thing. That was with wood. Yeah. Yeah, and then we had, we did this, you basically was like welding this metal potted plant holder, you, it like went on the wall, 
And I remember going in and being like, so I don't really want to do this. I'm <laughs> a little Hannah. scared of it. <laughs> in true and Hannah fashion, she speaks her mind. Literally, I'm like, so this is like eighth grade. I was like, yeah, I don't really want to. And so then the metals um, teacher literally welded the whole thing for me. He was like yeah. teaching me how to do it mm-hmm. while I stood there and was like, okay, is it done now? Can I take it? There was apparently a room where like you did all the staining, like it was super ventilated. Does that make sense? We did do the staining. Ben's brothers told me that people used to smoke weed in that room because it was so well ventilated because of all the stain that you couldn't smell it, like, at all. I actually don't know. And I was like, you smoked weed at school? And he was like, well, we didn't do it. And I was like, hmm, seems unlikely. Right. I, I never experienced that, but I'm also extremely oblivious as a person. Marissa walks in, people are, like, smoking joints. She's like, I'm just doing my stain, guys! I'm just gonna stain, I made my dad a cloth! <laughs> I just got a stain! I just got a stain! Why am I wearing heels? I'm in woodshop. I'm very vain. <laughs> I looked bomb as fuck every day in high school. Ew. I mean, purely out of insecurity. And now I'm sitting here in... Well, this this is my I found it's out cute outfit. I like this outfit. This sweatshirt, this Jordan Jordan Nike flight sweatshirt, I, I found out is from the late eighties. Nice. So I truly am rocking. And where did you cop that? What was that place called? I think it was just called Vintage, wasn't it? It was next to Urban Bean Coffee. I. Oh yeah, that was the one with all the like cowboy so many cowboy boots and so many Levi's and none of them fit me right and so many Levi 501 jeans and I tried the men's right. and the women's none of them fit none of them fit it was very disappointing and fur coats and sunglasses and awkwardly overalls that made you look like a train conductor like the striped ones so if you if that's your aesthetic go to vintage it's someone's aesthetic right aesthetic Max and I were talking about last night how people have started we've noticed that people have started to villainize us at the spelling bee because if they get something out they get like mad you know they get a word out they oh get yeah mad they're like us. participants get mad yeah so they you know they can't spell and that's like that's our fault and them. they accuse us of not using real words and it's like it's not my fault that you're an idiot I'm just gonna say that right now my favorite thing is when people we say a word and people's reaction is it's not even a word. I I'm like, just because you haven't so read a book, Brett, right. doesn't mean that it's not a real word. And the one time my comeback was, you're basically insulting this man's intelligence just because you don't know what it is doesn't mean he doesn't. He goes, no, I'm stupid. I don't. And I was like, fucking hey, I was trying to get the crowd back. Why wouldn't you be on my side? Right. So it's just Probably like. he was friends with Brett. May potential. Potent- I think it was Chad. His name was. Oh, he's Chad. been there before. He's actually. Re- no, his name is Nick. It's Nick. It's Nick. He's been there a couple times. Like played? Yeah. And, like, always gets mad? No, no, the, Nick, the one that was like, no, I'm kind of dumb, actually. He's actually super oh. sweet. He just, like, didn't have my back and getting the crowd back on track. Okay. So I'm kind of pissed. But, like, lately they've well, just been villainizing us, and we've noticed that it's a lot of really douchey people now as opposed to the fun, quirky people that used to come, and, like, just for fun. I love me, my OG 331 people. I love the OG331 people, because they, yeah, anyway, I could go on about how just, we've just noticed a, a shift in the demographic of okay, the spellers. Okay, so cool people, please come to the spelling bee. Fun, quirky people. Yeah. Just come to the spelling bee at the Get three, three, these one, dirty one. frat boys out of here. And that's basically what it's turned into is these just douchey, like, self-entitled... How dare you get me out when when I don't know the, the word? Thing. We're not getting them out. They right. just don't You're know getting how to yourself spell. out, and you can also, buy like, back in. That's the other thing is like they get mad when they get out in round one, and it's like you can afford that 
seven dollars eight dollars to get mm-hmm. back in it's this, a beer yeah this one girl last night also like please relax it's right. a drunk spelling and that's like what i've been kind of saying too like low-key like you guys were just here to have fun but this girl last night was like i'm not gonna buy back in that's stupid and then she tried to sneak back in by taking someone else's number and max was like no you're Ooh, out I hate you're out that. you're out you literally complained about buying back in and then you took someone else's number you're out and people were like oh, okay and it's just like no like you want someone, so that's not fair to the other players that no. you just sneak back in to get another chance even though you got out. Like, that's not fair to everybody else. I just don't, I don't understand why people care that much. I know. Like, it's lit, the point is to drink. Right, the point and is to drink and have fun, and if you're gonna, like, take it personally that you didn't spell a word right, read more books. Right, like, get a word that's of the day a moment calendar. for you to go educate yourself. Right, get a word of if the day. If you really want to show us, come back and fucking win the spelling bee. Go over that Merriam-Webster dictionary and yeah. you show us what you learned. You put that thesaurus on your <laughs> desktop you save that as a bookmark you get your th- you get your thesaurus of a day notification i don't even know why i tried to say that word i can't say that word the thesaurus it is season two episode 11 and since i'm odd i believe that means i go first it does so are you gonna do your longer story do you, so should i do the shorter one yeah okay so um oh my eye no we talk about optometry. <laughs> I'm going to talk about optometry. Talk about first optometrist ever. The very first Just optometrist. Just start poking people in the eye and saying, I'm a doctor. I'm a doctor. So, here we go. States besides Minnesota, such as Wisconsin and Michigan, try to claim him as their own. But everybody knows that Paul Bunyan is from oh Minnesota. I feel like there's a reason that I decided to do Paul Bunyan. I feel like it came up, like, nonchalantly, like, last time. Or, I don't know, but I, there was a reason I decided like to do Like, between you Paul. and I? Yeah. I, I don't recall so ever funny. talking about Paul Bunyan. <laughs> but I don't really? remember half the stuff we talk about. That wasn't podcast. a topic of conversation for us? I mean, well, it might have been just, like, at some point. I don't remember if it was recorded. <laughs> well, it's about to be. All right. Um, so, if you're a Minnesotan and you don't know who Paul Bunyan is, just move. You yeah, can't live. You can't here. live here anymore. But for those of you who don't know Paul Bunyan, uh, he is an American lumberjack known for his superhuman labors, and he is usually accompanied by his sidekick, Babe, the big, big, Babe, Babe, the big blue ox. I love her. Uh, he is part of lumberjack folklore, beginning somewhere in the 1800s. His origin stems from oral tradition. My favorite. Uh, <laughs> each group of workers had its own tall tale of hero, Paul Bunyan. He was a hero of North America's lumberjacks. The workers who cut down trees... I don't know what this sentence is. Did you just define lumberjacks? <laughs> I think The I workers did. who cut down trees. Paul Bunyan was a hero of North America's lumberjacks. The workers who cut down trees is Thank a you. sentence that I wrote, and yep. I... I mean, just in case there are any, like... People didn't know. Obviously, we, we have li- listeners in Mexico, so they I was just going to say, don't we have that one listener? In, 13. In... We have 13 listeners in Mexico, so shout out Is to... Is that 13 listeners or 13 listens? Look. Listen. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> no. Well, we have one faithful Mexican okay. uh, subscriber. <laughs> 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 oh my god one faithful mexican <laughs> you have that one faithful okay um so he was known for his strength speed and skill stories circulated for not 30 the mexican years. no well we don't know paul bunyan paul bunyan I mean, our one faithful mexican our one also. faithful mexican could also be known for strength speed and skill okay 
Um, no, Paul Bunyan was known for his strength, speed, and skill. Stories circulated for 30 years before anyone wrote them down, and they must have spent... I wrote, too much time cutting down trees, not enough time turning trees into paper. <laughs> Ooh, I, I like that. So, uh, the earliest recorded reference to Paul Bunyan is an uncredited 1904 editorial in the Duluth News Tribune. Mm-mm. And Duluth is in Minnesota. Um, for, 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 our no, Mexican no, no, listener. No, 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 I know, I got it, I got it. Our I understand. <laughs> I, I was gonna comment and then I didn't. We've got some listeners from other other states and stuff too. Uh, and there was a, so there was a lot of scholarly research in Wikipedia, but that's Why? not. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. That's not fun. There's also like the etymology of Paul Bunyan's name. What? What? What scholarly research can you do about a? Folklore. I think it was more on like how the oral tradition was passed down and who like would write about it and the different articles that it appeared in, but that's huh. not necessarily about Bunyan himself. Got it. So I wanted to more so do as opposed to like the history of Paul Bunyan, just the man, the myth, the legend. Yeah. Um so Paul Bunyan is a giant lumberjack. He is a mythical hero of the lumber camps in the United States as a symbol of bigness, strength, and vitality. The tales and anecdotes that form the Paul Bunyan legend are typical of the tradition of frontier tall tales. Uh, so, you know, lumberjack folklore. And again, lumberjacks are the ones who cut, cut down, down the trees. Yep, they lumber, and their names they, are They jack, jack that lumber. They jack that lumber. Paul and his companions, Babe the Big Blue Ox and Johnny Inkslinger, are... Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Who? Johnny Inkslinger. Who? Never heard of Johnny? No. Well, well, that's because you focus more on the scholarly research as opposed to the actual tall tales themselves. Ugh, my bad. Really, though. Sorry, Johnny. They overcame rains that lasted for months, (laughs) giant mosquitoes, and adverse geography. They were still able to get those trees jacked. Uh, The tales describe how Paul, who fashions lakes and rivers at will, created Puget Sound, the Grand Canyon, and the Black Hills. They celebrated the lumberman's prodigious appetites. Uh, Paul's camp stove covers an acre, and his hot cake griddle is so large that it is greased by men using sides of bacon for skates. So he real big. Sides of bacon for skates. And he he creates his own fucking rivers. Like, he's just, maybe that's where the 10,000 lakes in Minnesota came from. Because those... Are you serious? uh, I mean, I'm sure maybe that was the... No, no, no. No, Paul Bunyan's not real. No, no, no. No, no, no. No, no, no. No, no, no. No. That's literally part of his legend, is the tenth, is the lakes. Okay. You literally just... <laughs> I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm a bad Minnesotan. Wait, I might be wrong, but I'm like 99% sure that's where, like... If the you... legend comes from. Yeah, like... <laughs> I'm sorry, I just, that's... Maybe that's where his lakes... I don't know. It's possible. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. Let's go with it. Yeah. I'm... Um. So, <clears throat> what did Johnny Inkslinger do? Like, what? I don't know. I need more backstory <laughs> on him. Well, I bu- I put down some some of those actual stories too that I'll oh, read okay. you. Um. So Paul was first introduced to a general audience by W. B. Lafed, the creation of Ten Thousand Lakes. Well, we'll have to read that one too. Uh, a Minnesota advertising man and a series of pamphlets from 1914 to 1944 <clears throat> used to publicize the products of the Red River Lumber Company. So he, he first was a, a folklore legend, but then somebody capitalized on his image and used him as, like, a, a advertising... America! Yeah. The Bunyan legend was further popularized by numerous children's books and by civic festivals held to attract tourists to Bunyan Land, which is a theme park in Brainerd, Minnesota. Shut up. Yeah. Is it still open? Yeah. I looked it up. 
It's still Does open. Does it look fun? They just... Do they have roller these. coasters? Yeah, they do. Oh my god, why have we never gone? I think it's also like a campground, too. Oh my god, next summer, <laughs> let's go to Bunyanland. Bunyanland in Brainerd. Also, like... If you don't realize how it's spelled, Bunyanland does not sound like a real fun place. And they, so Wikipedia did cover the etymology of Paul Bunyan's name, and it does root back to actual Bunyans <laughs> in the French language. So, but he was very large and walked a lot, so I assume it totally makes sense why he would have some Bunyans. Exactly. Um, also, maybe Johnny Inkslinger just <laughs> he just tended to the Bunyans it's a lot of pens. rubbed his Bunyans. Also, he <laughs> writes a lot. He wrote down the. I was going to say, did he? Is he the one that wrote it? I'm, Again, you don't know. I don't know, because I'm only ever half right. I literally updated our bio to an informational podcast that only ever gets the info half right. Oh my god, very accurate. It's accurate. Although I didn't even notice. That's okay. Cool, good job. Thank you. Way to keep our podcast up to date. Yes. Um, also, our ever-changing landscape of our podcast. We, we grow, we evolve. I just suddenly got very sweaty. Oh, we grow, we get sweaty. I'm like stressed out about... Paul Bunyan. No, don't worry. Tell me more. I was really stressed out. So, I obviously, like, who hasn't been to Brainerd? <laughs> Besides our one faithful I Mexican. I think I've been to Brainerd. Yeah. But I've never been to Bunyan Land. Right. If, I mean, if you've been up north, if you have a cabin, chances are you've either been to Brainerd, driven through Brainerd, or you're, maybe your cabin's you know in Brainerd. Brainerd. You know of Brainerd. Um, so, we went to Brainerd uh, one year when we were at the cabin. And we saw the statues of Paul Bunyan and Babe the Big Blue Ox. I climbed on top of Babe, mm-hmm. then realized I was terrified. Like you climbed up to the top? Mm-hmm. And then you got And then stuck? I got real scared, and there's a picture of three people trying to call me down, <laughs> which I will post on the Instagram. <laughs> I'm, like, terrified. I'm terrified, and there's three people with their arms up being like, oh it's God. okay. How like, old were you? Oh, 16. Nice. <clears throat> nice. So. Inappropriate age to be that upset. I was really scared. <laughs> and then it reminded me of all the times I would climb this giant rock in my neighbor's yard and then get really scared and one of the parents always had to come. And Why do you climb things? I don't know. You're just going to get scared at the time. I like the act of climbing. I don't like the results. Uh, so, and then I have some actual Paul Bunyan stories. Great. I'm so excited. Did then, Paul Bunyan tell them himself? <clears throat> So did Johnny Angslinger. Um, Bemidji's stories of Paul. So old time Bemidji loggers passed up. Bemidji is also a. It's right next to Brainerd. It's right next to Brainerd. Uh, old time Bemidji loggers passed down their favorite Paul and Babe stories over the years, and here are some of how those stories go. It caused quite the excitement in the Bemidji woods that day when five giant storks working in relays delivered Paul to his parents, and what a baby Paul oh, was! Got it. It took a whole herd of cows to keep his milk bottle filled, and he could eat 40 bowls of porridge prepared every two hours from the who-makes-porridge kitchens to keep his stomach from rumbling and knocking the house down. I don't know why. I think there was a joke in there, but who makes porridge? Who makes porridge? But I don't, you didn't commit. It was in, (laughs) it's in parentheses. It doesn't make sense. Anyway, um, so I ate a lot of porridge. Paul grew so fast that one week after being born, he had to wear his father's clothes. A lumber wagon drawn by a team of horses from Buena Vista's Lodging Village was Paul's baby carriage. Not sponsored. I was going to say, was that like a random ad? Buena Vista's Lodging Village! Not sponsored. Uh, yeah. Um, by the time Paul was one years old, his clothing was so large, Bemidji Woolen Mills makers of the now famous Lumberjacks plaid had to use wagon wheels for buttons. Oh, gosh. 
Only the great outdoors was big enough to accommodate Paul, and it was natural that he should become not only Bemidji's, but the world's greatest lumberjack. Obviously. Sucks. And then this is how Paul met Babe. Oh my god, yes! <clears throat> Catch one of the old-time loggers at Bemidji Brewing Company, and you may hear a few stories about the old days with the giant lumberjack and when the geese flew backward. No, not from too much beer, but when it was so cold, it was named the year of the blue snow. Mm. It was that same year when Paul found a baby ox frozen blue from the snow. Oh my god! After Paul took him home and warmed him, his color stayed blue, and Paul named him Babe. Like Paul, Babe grew fast and soon was seven axe handles and a plug of tobacco wide between the eyes. <laughs> babe, also, I thought Babe was a girl. Um, I'm just a comment. Not, I, I didn't know that. Babe had many jobs around the logging camp, such as hauling the huge camp tank wagon used to pave the winter logging roads with ice. It was when the wagon sprang a leak one day that Lake Itasca was formed. And the overflow trickled all the way down to New Orleans, known today as the Mississippi River. Oh. Coldest winter we remember. Stop at the tourist... Is it? Is that the year of the blizzard on fucking <laughs> Halloween? Yeah. <laughs> or was it 92? I don't remember. I don't think so. I don't, I don't Anyways, sorry. I just got excited the about bl- being cold. The coldest winter we remember. 93. 93. <laughs> the snowstorm. I was born. <laughs> I, was, I was born... Alive also. <laughs> you were. <laughs> still alive. That is shocking. Um, at the, so stop at the Tourist Information Center and you may mm-hmm. learn about the year of two winters. The snow was so deep that year, Paul had to dig down to find the trees. That's how the Lost 40 was overlooked. Leaving a change in landscape still there today. And it was so cold at the logging camp on Lake Bemidji that year, words froze in midair. Whoa. When the words thawed out from the, in the spring... There was a huge roar of conversation heard 600 miles away in Chicago. That was the year, too. The fish were so cold, they grew fur, like a bobcat over their fins. And ever since, loggers say ice fish on Lake Bemidji, and you just might catch a fish with a fur. And we don't mean a catfish. I hate that. I hate that a lot. I already don't like fish. I don't want fish with fur. Yeah, it seems kind of weird. Beavers? Are not fish with fur. But. They are animals. I think they're mammals. (laughs) Evolution. I hate it. Um, I love evolution. I don't. I hate that thing that you just said. Very religious. Uh, The legend lives on. Paul and Babe were a good team. No feat of strength or courage was beyond them. Paul could cut down acres of timber single-handedly in just a few minutes by tying his huge axe to the end of a rope and swinging it in circles. Babe could haul the logs away as fast as possible. Do you know how sexual that sounds? Yeah. Okay, just checking. Just checking. In circles. In circles. A helicopter. Yeah. Uh, While Paul and Babe wandered the forest from coast to coast each year, they returned home to Bemidji to fish and play in the hundreds of lakes. For those who miss his annual visit, just snap a picture with with the huge statue of Paul and Babe marking his birthplace on the shore of Bemidji. This fun- this story was sponsored by the city of Bemidji. This yeah. is like a desperate attempt for Bemidji people to be like, come to Bemidji! Come to Bemidji! We've, we've now sponsored the Tell Us More podcast. Mm, Bemidji would have to give us so much money. No, I'm just yeah, kidding. Yeah. Literally, if anyone from Bemidji was like, we'll give you $10, we would be like, yes! <laughs> we'll totally promote. So, okay, I'll read the creation of the 10,000 Lakes. This is the tale of how Minnesota's 10,000 Lakes came to be. One day, Paul Bunyan had his blue ox babe tied up because he had been bad. Ooh. Paul went off to I don't do like some this logging. Story. <laughs> Sexual. 
Paul went no! to do some logging and Babe tried to get free. Paul came back and Babe ripped himself free of the chains that he was being held by. Go, Babe. Paul Bunyan chased Babe all over Minnesota and the blue ox and Paul Bunyan left their footprints all over Minnesota. Then it began to start raining heavily and all the footprints filled with water. This is how the 10,000 lakes of Minnesota were created. That was well, awesome. That's the 10,000 lakes. We love a good origin story. We love Paul Bunyan. I have, I feel like all Minnesotans have a soft spot for Babe and Paul. Oh, yeah. I don't know why. Probably well, just because we grew up with it. Minnesota origin. I remember, like, talking about it in school. Like, we read. Yeah. Like, part of our elementary school curriculum was Paul Bunyan. I mean, as it should be. Important things are being taught, learned. <laughs> exactly. We've been learned about Paul. We done been learned. So what do you got from me? I'm going to tell you. <laughs> About Oprah Winfrey. Yes! <laughs> you get a podcast, and you get a podcast, and you get a podcast. Awesome. Okay, I'm uncomfortable yeah. real quick, so yeah. I'm just going to yeah, get, get cozy. comfy. Oh, sorry, Jax. Okay. He's so annoyed with you right now. I yeah. Okay. Winfrey's first name was originally spelled O-R-P-A-H on her birth certificate after the biblical figure book in the book of Ruth, so Orpa. But people mispronounced it regularly, and Oprah stuck. She was born in Kosciuszko, Mississippi. No idea if I'm saying that right. Probably not. To an unmarried teenage mother. She later said that her conception was due to a single sexual encounter, and the couple broke up not long after. Her mother, Vernita Lee, was a housemaid, and Winfrey's biological father is usually noted as Vernon Winfrey, a coal miner turned barber turned city councilman who had been in the armed forces when she was born. Was he not involved in her life? Um, I talked about it. Okay. After Winfrey's birth, her mother traveled north, and Winfrey spent her first six years living in a, in rural poverty with her maternal grandmother, Hattie May, who was so poor that Winfrey often wore dresses made of potato sacks, for which the local children made fun of her. Assholes. True assholes. Grandmother taught her to read before the age of three and took her to the local church where she was nicknamed the preacher for her ability to recite Bible verses. When Winfrey was a child, her grandmother would hit her with a stick when she did not do chores or if she misbehaved in any way. At age six, Winfrey moved to an inner-city neighborhood in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, with her mother, who was less supportive and encouraging than her grandmother had been, largely as a result of the long hours that she worked as a maid. Around this time, uh, Lee, her mother, sorry. Around this time, Lee had given birth to another daughter, Winfrey's younger half-sister, Patricia, who later, at age 43, died of causes related to cocaine addiction. By 1962, Oprah's mother was having difficulty raising both daughters, so Winfrey was temporarily sent to live with Vernon in Nashville, Tennessee. While Winfrey was in Nashville, Lee gave birth to a third daughter who was put up for adoption in the hope of easing the financial straits that had led Lee to being on welfare, and later was also named Patricia. (laughs) We're just going to recycle the name. Yeah. Uh, Winfrey did not learn that she had a second half-sister until 2010. By the time Winfrey moved back with her mother, Lee had also given birth to a boy named Jeffrey, Winfrey's half-brother, who died of AIDS-related causes in 1989. Sad. Winfrey has stated that she was molested by her cousin, her uncle, and a family friend starting when she was nine years old, something she first announced to her viewers on a 1986 episode of her TV show regarding sexual abuse. When Winfrey discussed the alleged family abuse with family members at age 24, they reportedly refused to believe her account. Winfrey once commented that she had chosen not to be a mother because she had not been mothered well. Mm. At 13, after suffering what she described as years of abuse, 
Winfrey ran away from home. When she was 14, she became pregnant, but her son was born prematurely, and he died shortly after birth. Oh, I didn't know that. That's sad. Winfrey later stated she felt betrayed by a family member who had sold the story of her son to the National Enquirer in 1990. That's fucked. You can't trust anybody. No. She began attending Lincoln High School in Milwaukee, but after early success in the Upward Bound program, was transferred to the affluent suburban Nicollet High School, where she says her poverty was constantly rubbed in her face as she rode the bus to school with fellow African-Americans, some of whom were servants of her classmates' families. Servants? Yes. I hate that word. Yep. She began to steal money from her mother in an effort to keep up with her free-spending peers. She started to lie and argue with her mother and go out with older boys. Her frustrated mother once again sent her to live with Vernon in Nashville, although this time she did not take her back. Vernon was strict but encouraging and made her education a priority. Winfrey became an honor student, was voted most popular girl, and joined her high school speech team at East Nashville High School, placing second in the dramatic interpretation. Yes, Oprah! She won an oratory contest, which secured her full scholarship to Tennessee State University, which was a historically black institution where she studied communication. Her first job as a teenager was working at a local grocery store. At the age of 17, Winfrey won the Miss Black Tennessee beauty pageant. She also attracted the attention of the local black radio station, WVOL, which hired her to do the news part-time. She worked there during her senior year of high school, and again while in her first two years of college. So this is all, like, before she's, like... She's a successful woman that didn't let hardships hold her back. An inspiration from the start. I just... I love her. Uh, Winfrey's career choice in media would not have surprised her grandmother, who once said that ever since Winfrey could talk, she was on stage. As a child, she played games interviewing her corncob doll and the crows on the fence of her family's property. And Winfrey later acknowledged that her grandmother's influence, saying it was Hattie Mae who had encouraged her to speak in public and gave me a positive sense of myself. Working in the local media, she was the youngest news anchor and first black female news anchor at Nashville's WLACT-TV. She moved to Baltimore's WJZ-TV in 1976 to co-anchor the 6 o'clock news. And in 1977, she was removed as a co-anchor and worked lower-profile positions at the station. What the fuck? She was then recruited to join Richard Scher as the co-host of WJZ's local talk show, People Are Talking, which premiered on August 14th, 1978. I love that the talk show is literally called People Are Talking. (laughs) I mean, our podcast is called Tell Us More. I I I Uh, she also hosted a local version of Dialing for Dollars, which I don't know what that is. I'm assuming it's like a... Probably like a call-in. It was GoFundMe before GoFundMe yeah. was a Dialing thing. for... <laughs> Literally. Uh, in 1983, Winfrey relocated to Chicago to host WLS-TV's low-rated half-hour morning talk show, AM Chicago. The first episode aired on January 2nd, 1984, and within months after Winfrey took over, the show went from last place in ratings to overtaking Donahue as the highest-rated talk show in Chicago. Yeah. The movie critic, Roger Ebert, persuaded her to sign a syndication deal with King World, and Ebert predicted that she would generate 40 times as much revenue as his television show at the movies. It was renamed the Oprah Winfrey Talk Show, expanded to a full hour, and broadcast nationally beginning September 8th, 1986. Winfrey's show brought in double Donahue's national audience, displacing Donahue as the number one daytime talk show in America. Their much-publicized contest was the subject of enormous scrutiny, and Time Magazine wrote, Few people would have bet on Oprah Winfrey's swift rise to host the most popular talk show on TV. In a field dominated by white males, she is a black female of ample bulk. Of ample bulk? As interviewers go, she is no match for, say, Phil Donahue. 
What she lacks in journalistic toughness, she makes up for in plain-spoken curiosity, robust humor, and above all, empathy. Guests with sad stories to tell are apt to rouse a tear in Oprah's eye. They, in turn, often find themselves revealing things that they would not imagine telling anyone, much less a national TV audience. It is the talk show as a group therapy session. I love Oprah. I love Oprah. Um, TV columnist Howard Rosenberg said she's a roundhouse, a full-course meal, big, brassy, loud, aggressive, hyper, laughable, lovable, soulful, tender, low-down, earthy, and hungry. And she may know the way to Phil Donahue's jugular. So I don't know who this Phil Donahue person is, but apparently... Oprah was like, I'ma come for you. I mean, I mean, clearly, she did beat out Phil Donahue, because right. we don't know who he is. Exactly. Uh, Newsday observed, Oprah Winfrey is sharper than Donahue, wittier, more genuine, and far better attuned to her audience, if not the world. The Wall Street Journal wrote, it's a relief to see a gab monger with a fond but realistic assessment of her own cultural and religious roots. Basically, everyone was like, yeah. Yay, Oprah, from the start. <laughs> uh, in the early years of the Oprah Winfrey show, the program was classified as a tabloid talk show. In the mid-1990s, Winfrey adopted a less tabloid-oriented format, hosting shows on broader topics such as heart disease, geopolitics, spirituality, and meditation, interviewing celebrities on social issues that they were directly involved with, such as cancer, charity work, or substance abuse. She also hosted televised giveaways during shows where every audience re member received a new car donated by General Motors or a trip to Australia. <sighs> Do you just wish you had got a car from Oprah? No, I wish I would have gotten a trip to Australia. Also I loved that. Australia. Yeah. <laughs> in addition to her talk show, Winfrey also produced and co-starred in the 1989 drama miniseries The Women of Brewster Place and a short-lived spin-off, Brewster Place. As well as hosting and appearing on television shows, Winfrey co-founded the Women's Cable Network Oxygen. Did you know that? I didn't know that. I didn't either. I love Oxygen. In 1993, Winfrey hosted a rare primetime interview with Michael Jackson, which became the fourth most watched event in American television history, as well as the most watched interview ever with an audience of 36.5 million people. On December 1st, 2005, Winfrey appeared on The Late Show with David Letterman to promote the new Broadway musical, The Color Purple, of which she was a producer, joining the host for the first time in 16 years. She was in the movie, too. Yeah. This was the Broadway show, though. So, did the Broadway show come before the movie? I think so. Oh, cool. I don't know. Maybe not. But she produced the show and then was in the movie. Uh, the episode was hailed as... Oh, the episode of this talk show, or the late show with David Letterman, was hailed by some as the television event of the decade and helped Letterman attract his largest audience in more than 11 years, 13.5 million viewers. You're welcome. Exactly. Although a much-rumored feud was said to be the cause of the rift, both Winfrey and Letterman balked at such talk. I want you to know it's really over whatever you thought was happening, said Winfrey. On September 10th, 2007, Letterman made his first appearance on the Oprah Winfrey show as its season premiere was filmed in New York City. So apparently they had a few and I just didn't know about I actually that. feel like I heard about that recently. Oh, really? Yeah. I had no idea. Um, in 2006, rappers Ludacris, 50 Cent, and Ice Cube criticized Winfrey for what Whoa. they were- Oh! Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like that! For what they perceived as an anti-hip-hop bias. In an interview with GQ magazine, Ludacris said that Winfrey gave him a hard time about his lyrics and edited comments he made during an appearance on her show with the cast of the film Crash. Do you remember that movie? It's a good yeah, movie. I do. He also said that he wasn't initially invited on the show with the rest of the cast. Winfrey responded by saying she's opposed to rap lyrics that marginalize women, but she does enjoy some artists. So her main issue is just the lyrics that marginalize right. women. You're objectifying. Like, God forbid. Calling, and you're calling women the, the bitches. 
She said she spoke with Ludacris backstage after his appearance to explain her position and said she understood that his music was for entertainment purposes, but that some of his listeners might take it literally. Because people are dumb, and yes, they do. Same with comedy. In September 2008, Winfrey received criticism after Matt Drudge reported that Winfrey refused to have Sarah Palin on her show, allegedly because of Winfrey's support for Barack Obama. Winfrey denied the report, maintaining that there was never a discussion regarding Palin's appearance on her show. She said that after she made public her support for Obama, she decided that she would not let her show be used as a platform for any of the candidates. Although Obama appeared twice on her show, those appearances were prior to his declaring himself as a candidate. Winfrey added that Palin would make a fantastic guest and that if she and that she would love to have her on the show after the election, which she did on November 18, 2009. There you so. go. Don't come for Oprah because she will read you the receipts. <laughs> And then do what you did. Exactly. In 2009, Winfrey was criticized for allowing Suzanne Summers to appear on her show to discuss okay. hormone treatments that were not accepted by mainstream medicine. Critics have also suggested that Winfrey is not tough enough when questioning celebrity guests or politicians who she appears to like. Lisa DeMores, a media columnist for the Washington Post, said, Oprah doesn't do follow-up questions unless you're an author who embarrassed her by fabricating portions of a supposed memoir she plugged for her book club. Okay. I remember, so I know what that story is in the South Park episode. It's really funny. I'm about to talk about okay. it. Sorry. No, okay. no, no, you're fine. I just, like, stop criticizing Oprah. Like, why do you care that she's not tough enough? There's plenty of tough journalists. Uh, Oprah is an entertainer. Oh, she still like, interviews people. She proves her po- I mean, yeah. <laughs> so this comment is, a, and what Marissa's talking about, is a direct reference to the book A Million Little Pieces by James Frey, who originally told everyone that it was a memoir of his own experience, and it was later discovered that many of the events in the book never even happened. Did you read this book? I feel like I read an article that he wrote after the scandal talking about his... I know I read something about it from his point of view, mm-hmm. but I did not read his book. I read the book, and it's, like... I would, I mean, I would describe it as, like, harrowing. Like, it's a hard book to read because it's about this struggle with addiction and, like, alcoholism and stuff. But it's, like, to promote it as a memoir is so problematic. Right. So it was, like, it would have been a good book, just label it fiction. It still would have been a good book. Exactly. So after a six-week investigation, The Smoking Gun published an article on January 8th, 2006. That's what I read. I read that article. Called A Million Little Lies. Yep. The article described fabrications and Frey's account of his drug abuse experiences life and criminal record according to cnn the smoking guns editor william bastone said the probe was prompted after the oprah show aired he further stated we initially set off just to find a mugshot of him but it basically sent off a chain of events that started with us having a difficult time finding a booking photo of this guy the minneapolis star tribune the minneapolis star tribune had questioned james frey's claims as early as 2003 because we on it frey responded then by saying i have never denied i've altered small details Story oh, sur- I, didn't, I didn't inhale either. <laughs> Stories surfaced about Random House, a publisher of A Million Little Pieces, decided deciding to give full refunds to anyone who had purchased the book directly through it. According to a Gawker report, customers could have, could have a claim to money if they truly felt deceived by Frey. In an article detailing the book, Frey is quoted saying, he stands by the book as being an essential truth of my life. However, on January 26, 2006, Frey once again appeared on The Oprah Show, and this time admitted that the same demons that had made him turn to alcohol and drugs had also driven him to fabricate crucial portions of his memoir. It's first having been shopped as 
being a novel, but declined by many, including Random House itself. So, like, he tried to sell it as just a book. And it then... would have just been a good book on its own. Um, Winfrey told Frey that she felt really duped, but that more importantly, I feel like you betrayed millions of readers. She also apologized for her previous telephone statement to Larry King Live during Frey's appearance on that show in on January 11, 2006, that what mattered was not the truth of Frey's book, but its value as a therapeutic tool for addicts. She said, I left the impression that the truth was not important. Mm. During the show, Winfrey interrogated Frey about everything from the number of root canals he had to the existence of his girlfriend, Lily. Winfrey then brought out Frey's publisher, Nan Telesi, to defend her decision to classify the book as a memoir and forced Telesi to admit that she had done nothing to check the book's veracity, despite the fact that her representatives had assured Winfrey's staff that the book was indeed nonfiction and described it as brutally honest in a press release. Did you see the episode where she, like, brings him back on? No, it's but intense. I kind of want to. She is mad. I feel like just because she's not like that all the time doesn't mean that she's a bad no, I know. That's the thing. Like, like, that's annoying. Like that, that people were like, she's not hard on you unless you're James Bryan or whatever. Well, you lied to her. So and she she's put your book in a book club. Exactly. She, I would fucking come for you, too. Like, I would ruin you. It's a, it's a intense episode. I remember watching it. Uh, David Carr of the New York Times wrote, both Mr. Frey and Miss Telesi were snapped into, like, dry winter twigs. I love that. <laughs> Oprah annihilates Frey, proclaimed Larry King. And New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd wrote, It is a huge relief after our long national slide into untruth and no consequences, into swift boating and swift bucks, into W's delusion, oh, into delusion and denial to see the empress of empathy icily hold someone accountable for lying. Hell yeah! Uh, the Washington Post, Richard Cohen, was so impressed by the confrontation that he crowned Winfrey Mensch of the Year, and all of Winfrey's reactions, as well as video clips of her interview with Frey, are found within her book club's website. Oh, Oprah, she ain't holding back. I know. Amazing. Um, Stephen Levitt, co-author of Freakonomics, stated in his blog that having searched the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention database of mortality detail records, he was unable to identify a single death that reasonably closely matched Frey's description of the, of the circumstances of the death of Lily, Frey's alleged girlfriend in the book. Following Frey's admission to Winfrey that he had altered, altered Lily's method of suicide in the book from cutting her wrist to hanging, Levitt recorded on his blog that he was unable to find a recorded death consistent with Frey's revised description as well. Oh. Levitt states, Frey's primary defense has been to say that his criminal history is a minor part of the book and those inconsistencies do not substantially change the meaning of the story. Of course, his criminal history is the only thing that thesmokinggun.com actually looked into, given the virtue... Given that virtually nothing checks out, it doesn't bode well for the veracity of the rest of the book. So, literally, it's, he's just a big liar. Yeah. I literally wrote down, basically, that guy was a dick. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, what a, what a good, if, I just, I mean, it just would have been a good story on its own. It's a great book, and that's the thing that's really frustrating, is it's like, you're, what an idiot. Um, I then wrote, let's talk about love. <laughs> I would love to. Winfrey's high school sweetheart, Anthony Otei, recalled the innocent courtship that began in Winfrey's senior year of high school, from which he saved hundreds of love notes. Winfrey conducted herself with dignity and as a model student. The two spoke of getting married, but Otei claimed that to have always secretly known that Winfrey was destined for a far greater life than he could ever provide. She broke up with him on Valentine's Day of her mm, senior year. Why? That's cold. That's, that's, <laughs> and they said she couldn't be mean. <laughs> In 1971, several months after breaking up with Ote, Winfrey met William Bubba Taylor at Tennessee State University. 
And according to CBS journalist George Mayer, Taylor was Winfrey's first intense to die for love affair. Ooh. Winfrey helped Taylor get a job at WVOL, and according to Mayer, did everything to keep him, including literally begging him on her knees to stay with her. Taylor, however, was unwilling to leave Nashville with Winfrey when she moved to Baltimore to work at WJZ-TV in June 1976. We really did care for each other, Winfrey would later recall. We shared a deep love and a love I will never forget. Well, I'm glad she didn't be like, okay, I won't go. Exactly. She was like, all right, well, bye. A career woman. When WJZ-TV management criticized Winfrey for crying on the air while reporting tragedies and were unhappy with her physical appearance. Oh, Especially when her hair fell out as a result of a bad perm. Like, okay. assholes. That literally... What? Right. Fuck you. Winfrey later turned to reporter Lloyd Kramer for comfort. Lloyd was just the best, Winfrey would recall. The man loved me even when I was bald. He was wonderful. <laughs> he stuck with me through the whole demoralizing experience. That man had the most fun romance I ever had. Uh, I didn't know oh. there was other people than Stedman. Mm-hmm. According to Mayor, when Kramer moved to NBC in New York... In New York, Winfrey had a love affair with a married man who had no intention of leaving his wife. Wait. Yeah. Winfrey would later recall, I had a relationship with a man for four years. I wasn't living with him. I'd never lived with anyone. And I thought I was worthless without him. The more he rejected me, the more I wanted him. I felt depleted, powerless. And at the end, I was down on the floor on my knees, groveling and pleading with him. Winfrey became so depressed that on September 8th, 1981, she wrote a suicide note to best friend Gail King, instructing King to water her plants. Oh. The suicide note had been has been much overplayed, Winfrey told MS Magazine. I couldn't kill myself. I would be afraid the minute I did it, something really good would happen, and then I'd miss it. Yeah. According to Winfrey, her emotional turmoil gradually led to, the weight, to a weight problem. The reason I gained so much weight in the first place, and the reason I had such a sorry history of abusive relationships with men, was I just needed approval so much. I needed everyone to like me because I didn't like myself much. Mm. So I'd end up with these cruel, self-absorbed guys who'd tell me I had no... Or how selfish I was, and say, and I'd say, oh, thank you, you're so right, and be grateful to them. Because I had no sense that I deserved anything else, which is also Same. why I gained so much weight later on, and it was the perfect way of cushioning myself against the world's disapproval. Winfrey later confessed to smoking crack cocaine with a man she was romantically involved with during the same era. She explained on her show, I always felt that the drug itself is not the problem, but I was addicted to the man. She oh. added, I can't think of anything I wouldn't have done for that man. No. Oprah, I'm so glad you're opening up because I feel so close to you. I'll let her know. (laughs) (laughs) She's she's a fan. She's a fan. Um, Winfrey was allegedly involved in a second drug-related love affair. Self-proclaimed former boyfriend Randolph Cook said they lived together for several months in 1985 and did drugs. Like, what? What are trying to, like, claim to fame? Like, we did drugs. I did drugs with Oprah. Uh, in 1997, Cook tried to sue Winfrey for $20 million for allegedly blocking a tell-all book about her alleged relationship. Mm, it's called slander. What an, yeah, what an idiot. Also, in the mid-1980s, Winfrey briefly dated movie critic Roger Ebert. What? Roger Ebert. Whom she credits with advising her to take her show into syndication, which is true. I just said that. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> what an Weird. interesting Weird couple. option. Uh, in 1985, before Winfrey's Chicago talk show had gone national, Haitian filmmaker Reginald Chevalier claims he appeared as a guest on a lookalike segment and began a relationship with Winfrey involving romantic evenings at home, candlelit baths, and dinners with Michael Jordan and Danny Glover. Oh, were they also part of the candlelit baths? I don't know. <laughs> Chevalier says Winfrey ended the relationship when she met 
Stedman Graham. Is it Chevalier? Probably. Because if he's Haitian, it's probably French. It's probably Chevalier, but I'm gonna keep saying Chevalier. Also, he's not important anymore. Okay. (laughs) Winfrey and her boyfriend, Stedman Graham, have been together since 1986. They were engaged to be married in November 1992, but the ceremony has never taken place. So they're still engaged. 96, 92. Yeah, they're like, I'm assuming they're, what's it called when you like live together for... Common law. Yeah, you're common law married, but... um, I feel like, did they, well, you'll probably get to it, did they like, are they on and off at all? I don't think so. Oh my god. I think they've been together since... Study with Stedman. Hell yeah. Um, Winfrey's best friend since their early 20s is Gail King. King was formerly the host of The Gail King Show and is currently an editor of the O. Oprah Magazine. In 1997, when Winfrey played the therapist in an episode of the sitcom Ellen in which Ellen DeGeneres came out of the closet, Winfrey and King have been the target of persistent rumors that they were gay. Mm. I understand why people think we're gay, Winfrey says in the August 2006 issue of O. Magazine. There isn't a definition in our culture for this kind of bond between women, so I get why people have to label it's it. It's called best friends. How can you be this close without it being sexual? Mm. I've told nearly everything there is to tell. All my stuff is out there. People think I'd be so ashamed of being gay that I wouldn't admit it. Oh, please. That's so, it's literally just called being best friends. Right. Like, like you just, it's called best friend. That's the vocabulary. How can it not be sexual? How could you be so close to someone? I'm sorry, I'm not a shut-in. I'm not a shut-in. Born in rural poverty and raised by a mother dependent on government welfare payments in a poor urban neighborhood, Winfrey became a millionaire at the age of 32 when her talk show received national syndication. Winfrey negotiated ownership rights to the television program and started her own production company, and at age 41, Winfrey had a net worth of $340 million and replaced Bill Cosby as the only African American on the Forbes 400. In 2000, her net worth was $800 million. Winfrey is believed to have been the richest African-American of the 20th century. There has been a course taught at the University of Illinois focusing on Winfrey's business acumen, namely History 298, Oprah Winfrey, the tycoon, is literally a class. I would love to take that class. Winfrey was the highest paid television entertainer in the United States in 2006, earning an estimated $260 million during the year, five times the sum earned by second place music executive Simon Cowell. In 2008, her yearly income has... Or by 2008, her yearly income had increased to $275 million. Same. Forbes' list of the world billionaires has listed Winfrey as the world's only black billionaire from 2004 to 2006 and as the first black woman billionaire in the world that has achieved that was achieved in 2003. As of 2014, Winfrey has a net worth in excess of $2.9 billion and has overtaken former eBay CEO Meg Whitman as the richest self-made woman in America. Fuck yeah. Um, And then I'm going to talk about the Oprah effect. I'm almost done. So, the power of Winfrey's opinions and endorsement to influence public opinion, especially consumer purchasing choices, has been dubbed the Oprah effect. The effect has been documented or or alleged in domains as diverse as book sales, beef markets, and election voting. Late in 1996, Oprah introduced Oprah's book club segment to her television show, and the segment focused on new books and classics often brought and often brought obscure novels to popular attention. The book club became such a powerful force that whenever Winfrey introduced a new book as her book club selection, it instantly became a bestseller. For example, when she, collect, or when she selected the classic John Steinbeck novel, novel, East of Eden, it soared to the top of the book charts. Being recognized by Oprah often means a million additional book sales for an author. In Reading with Oprah, the book club that changed America, that's a book, Reading with Oprah, the book club that changed America. That's like Inception. Yeah, it's a lot of reading and reading. Yeah. Reading within reading. Oh, it is. Catherine Re- Catherine, nope. 
Kathleen Rooney, she's the author of that book, describes Winfrey as a serious American intellectual who pioneered the use of electronic media, specifically television and the internet, to take reading, a decidedly non-technological and highly individual act, and highlight its social elements and uses it in a way to motivate millions of erstwhile non-readers to pick up books. Oh, a good influence. Yeah. When author Jonathan Franzen's book was selected for the book club, he reportedly cringed and said selected books tended to be schmaltzy. Schmaltzy? Yeah. <laughs> During a show about mad cow disease with Howard Lyman. <laughs> oh, schmaltzy. I don't, I don't really know what schmaltzy means, and I don't really know why it's about, like, I don't know why he was upset that his book was selected. Schmaltzy. Did he, maybe he meant, like, cheesy, like, oh. Well, yeah, I think he was kind of a hipster. He was like, no, I don't want my uh, book on I've Oprah. never seen Forrest Gump. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> right. What? Because <laughs> it's, like, a classic movie, and some people are like, I've never seen it. Got like, it. Any, like, the God. classic, like, oh, you gotta see this I've movie. I've never seen People Forrest think Gump. they're cool for not having ever seen it. Like, Got it. Know. The classic hipster line, I've never <laughs> seen Forrest Gump. <laughs> Uh, mad cow disease. During the show about mad cow disease with Howard Lyman, Winfrey said she was stopped cold from eating another burger. Texas cattlemen sued her and Lyman what? in early 1998 what? for false defamation of perishable food but and business disparagement, she claiming said she was scared. Claiming that Winfrey's remarks sent cattle prices tumbling, costing beef producers 11 million dollars. And vegans cheered. Winfrey was represented by attorney Chip Babcock, Babcock, and on. February 26th, after a two-month trial in Amarillo, Texas, a jury found Winfrey and Lyman not liable for charges. Yeah, mad cow disease was already a thing. Like, why yeah. wouldn't you sue the person who uncovered it? And also... Because people, of the Oprah effect! People could die! Uh, people did! Winfrey's ability to launch other successful talk shows, such as Dr. Phil, Dr. Oz, and Rachel Ray, have also been cited as examples of the Oprah effect. I didn't, I didn't know Rachel Ray. I knew Phil. I didn't know, I didn't know Rachel Ray either. Uh, in 2000, this is philanthropy now. In 2004, Winfrey became the first black person to rank among the 50 most generous Americans, and she remained among the top 50 until 2010. By 2012, she had given away about $400 million to educational causes. As of 2012, Winfrey, Winfrey has also given over 400 scholarships to Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. Winfrey was the recipient was the recipient of the first Bob Hope Humanitarian Award at the 2002 Emmy Awards for services to television and film. To celebrate two decades on national TV and to thank her employees for their hard work, Winfrey took her staff and their families, 1,065 people in total, on vacation to Hawaii in the summer of 2006. I'm sorry. <clears throat> yeah. She took one, how many people? 1,026 people, her staff and their families. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Did they also get cars? I don't know. Probably. If they were like, I can't drive to work, she's probably like, here's a car! I'm gonna pick you up myself! I'll, I'll, be, I'll be there in a minute! <laughs> Oprah, you're supposed to be on live. Oh, I'll be there! Gotta go get Joe! Joe's my sound guy. He's my favorite one. He's my favorite. <laughs> um, in 2013, Winfrey donated $12 million to the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. And President Obama awarded her the Presidential Medal of Freedom later in the same year. Oprah's Angel Network. So in 1998, Oprah created the Oprah. In 1998, Winfrey created the Oprah's Angel Network, a charity that supported charitable projects and provided grants to nonprofit organizations around the world. Oprah's Angel Network raised more than 80. 
million dollars. That just took me a solid minute to figure out million and not billion. Because we would never have that That's much. so much money. I literally don't know what it is. A foreign word to us. It's like... Oh, more than $80 million, one million of which was donated by bon- John Bon Jovi. I don't know why that was important. Winfrey personally covered all administrative costs associated with the charity, so 100% of all funds raised went to the charity programs. In May 2010, Oprah's show ended, and the charity stopped accepting donations and was shut down. Why? Because her show ended. <laughs> oh. Um, in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, Oprah created the Oprah Angel Network Katrina Registry, which raised more than $11 million for relief supports, and Winfrey personally gave $10 million to the cause. Homes were built in Texas, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Alabama before the one-year anniversary of Hurricanes Katrina and Rita. In 2004, Winfrey and her team filmed an episode of her show, Oprah's Christmas Kindness, in which Winfrey traveled to South Africa to bring attention to the plight of young children affected by poverty and AIDS. During the 21-day trip, Winfrey and her crew visited schools and orphanages in poverty-stricken areas and distributed Christmas presents to 50,000 children. Uh, with dolls for the girls and soccer balls for the boys and school supplies. Okay, girls, can we play soccer? Yep. Shoot. I would like to choose this one, so. Yep. Okay. Vice versa. 2004. Um, during the show, Winfrey appealed to the viewers to donate money to Oprah's Angel Network for the poor and AIDS-affected children in Africa, and from that show alone, viewers around the world donated over $7 million. I literally... We don't understand. I can't read that big of a number. Winfrey invested $40 million and some of her time establishing the Oprah Winfrey Leadership Academy for Girls in Henley-on-Clip, south of Johannesburg, South Africa. The school sent over, or the school set over 22 acres, opened in January 2007 with an enrollment of 150 pupils, increasing to 450, and features state-of-the-art classrooms, computer and science laboratories, a library, a theater, and a beauty salon. Nelson, Nelson Mandela praised Winfrey for her overcoming her own disadvantaged youth to become a benefactor for others. Critics considered the school elitist and unnecessarily luxurious, and Winfrey rejected their claims, saying, If you are being surrounded by beautiful things and wonderful teachers who inspire you, that beauty brings out the beauty in you. Also, it's my fucking money. Winfrey, who has no surviving <laughs> biological children, described maternal feelings towards the girls at the Oprah Winfrey Leadership Academy for Girls. Winfrey also teaches a class at the school via satellite. Yes! Oprah Winfrey! Oprah Winfrey! I don't know what that was. She wins. And it's free. How the fuck would you criticize Oprah for opening a million school? Dollars. It's too nice. Uh, what right, like, what? A shack? If it wasn't nice enough, you'd criticize. Like, why you gotta find problems with everything? I hate people that have to find problems with literally everything. Like, she opened a school in Africa, and you said it was too nice. Like, what? I like it. I like that she was just like, you know what? Screw you. If it's pretty, you'll feel pretty. Exactly. Look good, feel good, do good. Right? Oprah like... invented that phrase. <laughs> Look I... good, feel good, do good. Literally. <laughs> Live like Oprah. Feel like Oprah. Be like Oprah. Be like Oprah. I am Oprah. I am Oprah. We are all Oprah. We are. We all have the potential to be Oprah. The thing about, I, I would like to think that if I had that much money, I would also be donating Right, I would just give it stuff. away. Like, would, oh my god. I would love to buy children computers in schools. Specifically? Mm-hmm. Children. I would fund art programs, because it makes me sad. Yep. That they're on music. That they're all they're all being cut, and some people, some kids aren't good at math and science. Like that, it's very discouraging to want to like go to school and do good in school when me. you're not good at any of the subjects. Me f. Yeah, like 
I hung out in that fine arts wing of high school constantly. Oh, yeah. I, I love broadcast media. I don't think they have that anymore, do they? They took it away for a while, and then that's the tel- – te- we're talking about the television show at our high school. Yeah. Um, they took our the TV show away for a while, and then I think they brought it back within the past couple of years, but I'm not I sure. I hope so. That was a fun outlet, like – Hell yeah. And then... Shockingly, we were both on the TV show. I know. Shockingly. surprised. uh, Shockingly, I always anchored. I loved anchoring. I always, like, it was just, I just did. Um, (laughs) Nobody else had a chance. Johnny and Sean were our anchors most of the time. Yeah. And you know what happens when you have broadcast media? You are a successful director in California, a.k.a. Sean Drummond. Not sponsored by Sean Drummond. Not sponsored by Sean Drummond. Sean Drummond doesn't listen to this podcast. Probably doesn't even remember that we exist. (laughs) But like, no, sometimes when I see him at Babes, he says, hey. Mm, hey. Hey. <laughs> you went, You were in his prom group. He's very famous. Yeah. Okay, so I guess that's the end. This was long. It was a good episode. Okay. Um. To tell for now. Subscribe. <laughs> Bye. Bye. We don't have a book. <laughs> Is that funny? That's funny. Okay. <laughs>